0: You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipilevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, the Ksam Sofer said that extraordinary communal situations, right? He wasn't he wasn't talking about ordinary communal situations, so the Shramasadesh is dealing with ordinary communal situations. But Sam Sofer talks about extraordinary communal situations, and he said that they have to be dealt with by analogy to halachic frameworks rather than by direct application of law. He does not tell you why this is so. Okay, right? The Troubles explained why it's so. He said that if you don't, right, if you judge people in accordance with Din Torah, right, right, it will be not be conducive to social peace if you try and impose a legal system that conflicts with the customs that have apparently worked for uh, right, for a collective. So I'm sorry, doesn't explain why, but he says in these extraordinary situations, and I'm generalizing them to extraordinary communal situations because that's the case He's talking about but he doesn't explain why those cases are different you could try and expand it he says he dua right everyone knows shidrim ka el ef shar bshum ofen laduna medin teram with the interamamish so it's an assumption that din teramamish is incapable of dealing with the situations but rather you deal with it. we, we call you know what he calls by you know i, I guess loose analogy right sekh um din ter of the curve sekh lanoshul damos milson la milson bedimian kurk sas right with the, yeah, weak analogies, distant analogies. It doesn't explain why it's just an intuition. Uh, the contemporary of Usher Weiss uh, had what I think is a, uh, a more startling rationale for why there are circumstances where pshara is better than din, that we don't want, we don't want the law to rule. We, right, we try and push the parties to settle rather than issue a legal ruling. He said, Because there are situations when there is no way to decide legally. So in such circumstances, you use um, you use um, ethics, yosher, and pshara, uh, and he generalised that to say that there are cases even where there could be a legal decision, but we still prefer pshara because uh, pshara is closer to yosher than law would be. And I argued and I um, argued as to why that might be. And then going back to some sofer, but not in his trivot, in a letter that's published in the memorial volume for him. Um, He says something that I think is worth reading um, in detail in our case. All right, again, he's dealing with um, the, um, he's dealing with, he's dealing with a case exactly analogous to what we're talking about, which is the payment of wages to workers in the aftermath of a war, right? The um, Franco-Austrian War of 1809, I think one of the footnotes tells me. So he says, So he says, um mishulam belini kui He said that I uh, will pay my uh, hired hands. You'll see that one of the later sources um, narrows this unnecessarily. I will pay anyone who works for me. Um, let's, let's say it for now. Mishulam entirely belini kui without any sort form of deductions. And we'll see in the outline what the possible types of deductions are. Viatem, but you, whoever he's writing to, Right, if you're not making decisions for yourselves, but you're functioning uh, judicially for others, so you should decide it in Alderaescher in a manner of compromise as opposed to letter of the law so, you're, so, he, so as opposed to So who I think uh, generally says he's paying all his workers whatever whatever they do people who are who are the specific case that's being brought to him which is what about the um tutors um, you should each pay half. Ah, um, even though, the, obviously, no learning, to, you know, no learning took place during the war. Is, but I still find it very hard, right? And this is later on in the letter. Even though I say that half-half is what sounds reasonable to me, if you ask me law, I find it very hard to explain why I should take the money away from the employers. Uh, because it's a category called a makat medina, which let's say for now means a circumstance that affects everyone across the board as opposed to a circumstance that is specific to one one or both of the parties to a contract. So mazal Shnehem we talked about as a hard concept to try and translate legally. We will try harder today, but it can't be attributed to one person or another person's fate, destiny, or luck. You can't say that it's one person's um, mazal more than another's. Alkain, therefore, he says, since reasonably it seems that they are that this is equally the, the consequence of each of them, uh, in a metaphysical sense. So I decided to make a which was. In consonance with each of their will. They didn't want law. They wanted an equitable compromise. And right, and they wanted that equitable compromise to include that each of them should lose something, right? They didn't think it would be right for one party or the other to win a case like this. So that's great when that's true. But it's not always true, unfortunately. And he said, oh, Well, dintura loyodati, but I don't know what the Torah is. Um so that could be taken at its word as you know this. I just don't know what the is, but I think it's more likely to say is that um, I don't like what the conclusion I would have to reach if it were Din Torah, and if I had to reach Din Torah, I don't know what would happen then because I'm not accustomed to reaching Din Torah decisions that I find morally uncomfortable. So I'm very happy not to right not to make that decision. That's how I right. So these are these give your parameters for saying that Din Torah doesn't work. Maybe we're dealing with a situation where it's um, the internal regulation of the collective, and halacha there is bound by the customs. What I would, what I, um, or if you want to generalize even more abstractly, claim the, expe- the reasonable expectations of all the parties to a to a um, to a collective, as opposed to uh, abstract law imposed from outside. The uh, Chazam Sover seems to think there's something different about communal emergencies. The Mincha says, you know what? There's some places which the law. Just it's not that the law covers badly, the law just doesn't cover them. And so of seems to think there are some places where the law covers badly, and maybe the Minchad Asher would agree with that. Okay. Here is our contemporary uh, Rabbi Yona Reese, uh, who is currently the Din of the Chicago Rabbinical Council and a very dear friend, um, who uh, highly admirable, um, highly admirable uh and tremendously learned figure uh says. Because of the diversion views, right? And this is after his his uh, long his um, full summary of the laws of uh, wage, you know what happens to wages during this period. What is generally recommended in these situations is a spirit of compassion and compromise, given the reality that everyone is financially disadvantaged by a makas medina. This was the approach followed by the Hsam sofer when he dealt with the suspension of schools in the Franco-Austrian War. Uh, so Soberies, after giving a very learned presentation of the law. Adopts the position that we really want to tell people that they shouldn't follow the law in this situation. So that's a very um, interesting notion. That, you know that when, which which happens, I think very commonly in American courts, uh, where people understand that legal decisions are worse both psychologically and from a justice perspective, perhaps than a compromise reached by the parties. And judges will recommend outlines of the comp- of, you know, for settlement. Certainly, that's true a lot. Uh, in divorce cases. Um, there's also self-interest in that the courts uh, would rather spend less time dealing with, uh, with cases like that. So Rebys thinks that's the, what a Batesian should recommend and he doesn't offer any, right, uh, he doesn't offer any legal conclusion. Um, so you can decide for yourselves why he thinks that law is not the best approach here. The base of Lakewood um, says something that seems like the same thing as Rebys, but perhaps is different in nuance once we have seen the prior sources about the different nuanced ways in which you can um, recommend that law not be the solution here. Although strict halacha generally dictates that a party cannot be required to pay out of pack- pocket in a matter of doubt, such as this one. Okay, right, so the Bedeva doesn't say that we don't know what Talaha the say. They say we do know what Talaha says. The halacha would say, Now here's an interesting thing, halacha would say that there's a dispute in halacha, and when there's a dispute in halacha, the money stays where it is. So that would be what the right if we if we followed the um, the rules right I would call the you know, would call the meta rules of the halakha, the rules about how you decide options in halakha, then whoever has the money wins. Nevertheless, the pshara is recommended, and then we quote the Sofer. Um and but he quote they quote the chasam sofer in a very interesting way, um, right? That due to due to the complexity of the shaila involved, it's difficult to give a definitive ruling. So that really is intention, right? Because we would say, no, right? When the matter is really complicated, so it ends up as a matter of doubt, the money stays where it is. So I think there's a lot of tension in what they're writing because I think they're probably very uncomfortable with the notion that there are areas where where even if you would know what the halacha is, that would be the wrong thing to do. I think that, you know, and I think understandably they're uncomfortable with that. Um So they quote the Sam Sofer and then he says he personally paid his malamdin their full wages during the disclosure. So I put malamdim in asterisk, in asterisk because if Sam Sober didn't say anything about malamdim, he said skirim. And now the base of is dealing with a case of daycare uh, daycare workers. So you could call daycare workers malamdim, but that is not necessarily the case, depending on what age the children are in daycare. Uh, I think for infants, it's very hard to claim that they that they're malamdim. And malamdim, as we'll see, are for good reasons, a special case in halakha. Um, and I think for their case, it's on, you know, almost certainly true that if the Chassam Sofer had children and therefore had to hire Malamdim, he would have paid them their full wages. But in terms of the general moral force of the Chassam Sofer's position, it diminishes it by saying that it's talking only about melamedim. And then they say, as mentioned, if a person has the financial ability to continue paying the full tuition, this would be highly commendable but then they do really interesting things. This is highly commendable, but only highly commendable assuming that the workers are being supported, right? Are living paycheck to paycheck, and if you pay offer to pay the full amount, even though it's a plausible legal position, um, to workers who need the money, then he says you can take this out of your master budget, right? So that's also a very interesting claim, right? So now the law is recommending that you engage in a process called pshura, and the process called pshura. Then the outcome of which you can, um, the, out, the outcome of which will enable you, uh, right, the, out, the outcome of which will enable you to, um, enable you, enable you to say that, um, that, that you, that you're giving it's part of your charity budget. So that's really a fascinating claim. Okay. All right. I agree entirely with, uh, with Ellen that I think that there's real discomfort with the notion that, I, as I said. Okay. So here's my outline of the material, um, with the caveat, which is, Almost always a problem when you try and systematize halacha, that because halacha is obviously written by committee, um, so terms are rarely used consistently um, among um, among texts across centuries and vast geographic divides, etc. So to set up a categorization, it usefully you have to use terms, but even in the Gemara, often these terms are not used consistently, uh, such as like poel and uman. Um, right, so there are places in the Gemara the, where a where a numan is called a poel, although I don't know of any cases where a poel is called a numan. Okay, so the categories are um, right. The two the two fundamental categories of workers the Talmud recognizes are people who work for time, that's what I call a poel, and people who do piecework. Right, they're paid they're paid by what they produce and not by how much time they spend doing it. All right so that's the fundable way in which the Talmud th- the Talmud thinks about it and one of the for me the challenges in translating Allah into modernity is that there's an implicit thing behind that is that people who work for time are generally assumed to be interchangeable um right roughly what we would call in uh, now unskilled workers although that's not exactly correct because the Talmud assumes that you can do unskilled labor with varying degrees of skills and therefore there are reasonably uh, different sal- right like it could be that different unskilled laborers will be paid uh will be paid different um different different rates of wages but fundamentally right fundamentally um if you really were translating intuitively you would say that uh Poel is a blue collar worker and Numan is a white collar worker, but the problem is that our white collar workers are right work on by time and not by piecework, although we do have you know something sort of interestingly in terms of overtime. Uh, right, where uh right, where blue-collar workers have to get paid overtime and white-collar workers not necessarily in other shifts like that. But it's one of the fundamental difficulties of translating halakha through the system is that halakha hasn't really developed a divide um, that parallels modern conceptions of categories of laborers. So we still try and work with you know with these distinctions and they don't map on very well. Within wage-for-time workers, we can distinguish between an at-will worker, uh, right, where each of you say, "Okay, let's work," and then the, there's no commitment on either part to right to keep working past any given moment. Um, right then, there's the thing with the term contract, like work for me for today, work for me with me for this week, uh, and that contract is binding on an employer and employee in different ways. As we'll see, that there is a presumption that a poel is allowed to break their contract in um, at any point, so so long as they can cover up front all the costs to their, um, the employees, sorry, can break it at any moment, so long as they can cover the costs to the employer. Um, but if they can't cover the costs to the employer, they have to do right. They have to do the work themselves. Um, and maybe even, right, probably you can't even compel specific performance. What you can just do is force them, sorry, right, you can force them to pay damages if they walk off the job and, the, and that, um, right, for example, in the middle of a rainy day, if you have, right, if you assume that a roofer is right if you're paying a roofer um, by the day, and at one o'clock in the afternoon, with they've you know, taken half your roof off, and then they say, "I'm sorry, I have you know, I I have to meet somebody, I have to meet somebody for uh, for, right, for snacks, for tea, whatever, right?" And your house gets ruined, you know, and right, and there are no other roofers available to hire, or the only roofers available to hire will charge you three times as much, so they have to pay that. Um, okay, and then right, if you have a term contract, you can get paid in advance where um, you can get paid only after you've completed it. And that will also change the halacha, obviously, um, most simply in the way we've seen, which is that whoever has the money, right, possession is a certain percentage, certain non-insignificant percentage of the law. Okay. Um, now, educators are an in-between case because there is no product, generally, they can be paid for. You didn't usually pay educators and say, okay, I'm going to give you this much money, and when my child is capable of reading a of reading a complicated toast food then you're done however fast however fast or slow it takes you that's not usually the way education works. Education was usually done by a time period and yet generally we didn't think of educators as interchangeable and you know not have not having specialized skills uh in the way we in the way other workers did although we didn't think of it as quite the perhaps the pre- the professionalized um profession it is now. Um, so educators are an in-between case, and so basically what often happens in the later literature is you have cases about pualim, cases about umanim as your precedents, but the real case is always, is almost always going to be an educator because guess who goes to beitin? Um Okay, and that's still true nowadays. right? That's why the, um, except for Rabbi Reis, and that's not uh, so coincidental in terms of the sensibility, uh, right, the base valid cases are about paying tuition to from day schools and things like that because that's whom they right, that's who actually comes to them for guidance in cases where there's a conflict between parties, uh, whereas Reese might be addressing an audience that is not so interested in figuring out how to resolve a conflict between parties, but rather to figure out um what it is they're supposed to do. Uh what Benjamin Friedman in Duty and Healing says is the difference between a rights and a duties based uh society, which is an interesting Um, perhaps critique of some kinds of orthodox societies that, uh, right, that in a rights-based society, you're trying to figure out how to divide the pie, and in a duties-based society, you're trying to figure out what the right thing to do is. So um, Rabbi Rees is responding to a society that's interested in duty. The Beisvat is responding to a society that is asking about rights, but that they think ought to be thinking about duties in a certain sense, and they respond that way. Okay. Maybe people really were asking for that as well. That would be better. Okay. So, those are, these are, right, in addition to our categories. Um, there's another issue, which is a lot of the categories of, of, of the precedents will be about agriculture. So, we have a chocher. A chocher is somebody who is a renter. And so, they're expected to, right, there's a certain amount they're expected to produce and give to the owner. And then they keep what's left over. Um, but obviously, a reasonable expectation, if reasonable expectations as to what the amount will be that, will be left over and so if there's grave damage so the question is whose expectations are uh whose expectations um are not going to be met the contract is not written that they get the first x and then they have to give the next x to the to the landlord and then above that right they get to keep again that would make life much simpler generally the contract says nothing about their expectations and only talks about their obligations towards the landlord there's a kablan a kablan is a renter um, who, right, whose, pri- whose price is fixed in cash as opposed to in kind. And see, so why should that make a difference? Um, since in general, the way they expect to get the cash would be from the produce of the field. So what difference does it make? But you'll see that it might make a difference. And then an aris is a sharecropper who pays a percentage. In that case is also fairly easy uh, because why don't we just divide it by percentage? The answer, you know, the reason again is that it might be that the aris is expecting to feed himself and so you're leaving him, right? So there might be an implicit expectation that the Iris gets a minimal amount. But on the other hand, who knows, right? There's always the issue. Maybe the landlord is, you know, is, you know, is the three, you know, is really a three year old orphan whose support is entirely from this one field they inherited, whatever it may be. Okay. Now what I call subs- substantive issues, which are issues that um, have to be that uh, are in the, I was trying to think of the right formulation. They're issues that you have to ask about the case whether you're functioning within halakha or not. Okay, so if there's an issue about moral responsibility overall, right, which is, right, was the the onus, or we're assuming here we're dealing with damage that neither party could have prevented, right, Something an incident happened. So the issue doesn't matter if it was foreseeable by one side or the other, right, More, uh, more or less. And if it does so, right, in what way does that ability to foresee change it? So one possibility is they have a duty to inform, um, right? and there may also be presumptions about which party. Right? Maybe you have a right. Maybe right? when we say foreseeable, it doesn't mean that you foresaw it. It might mean that just that you have a duty to foresee it, or it might be that we make a presumption that you foresee it. You'd have to present evidence that you know. Let's say, for example, that um, you that you're, you generally relied on the, on on the newspaper. Uh, this is an obsolete example, obviously, for the weather report. And your newspaper wasn't delivered that day, right? In pre-internet days. Um, okay, and um, then the other possibility is contractual responsibility, which is that maybe one side or the other has an obligation to explicitly stipulate. So this is a very big deal halakhically, uh, right? Which party has the burden of stipulation Now that? The burden of stipulation is obviously a function of expectations, and expectations should obviously be a function of the way in which the law was decided last time as to, to stipulate. So that's a big challenge if you have no presidential cases at all. Um and possibly there's a question, even if the contract was inevitably going to be broken, you might argue that it matters which side breaks the contract first. So that's a case that you know we can try and think about whether that should matter. Um let's say you know it was obvious. No, was not say it was, no, it was wasn't obvious. At a certain point, the state closed down, um the state closed down, let's say, you know, all non-essential businesses. But some workers refused to come in before the state closed, and some businesses closed before the state uh, before the state demanded it. So whichever whichever party did it without being compelled to by the law um, breached the contract first. So you might argue that since they breached the contract first, they are solely responsible for everything that happens thereafter, or not because it was going to happen anyway. So what difference does it make? Maybe may, maybe the responsibility is different for the first day, or maybe if you think they were right to do so, or it was inevitable. So then it shouldn't affect anything at all, right? But those are the substantive issues. Okay, what about the, uh, what are possible outcomes? So possible outcomes are one side responsibility to either side. Joint responsibility which we can, where we can measure that in various kinds of, we could do it by just dividing it 50-50 or we could use a, a model of contributory negligence, right? Where we figure out to what extent is each party responsible in various ways. We can say that the employer is responsible to play, to pay wages Minus actual overall costs, right? Meaning that if you know, labor costs are only a certain, are only a particular part of what um, the employer expects, and it, the employer expects labor costs to come out of a certain amount of profit, et cetera. So, if the owners are sustaining losses, that right, that even though those losses are independent of the labor costs, maybe they can deduct some of them from the uh, right from the labor costs. It could be that the way we that we allow the employers to deduct only a specific cost. Which is that, um, the, right? Since these workers will not, not necessarily be available to them, so there are going to be costs in terms of um, of recruiting new workers, and maybe they can take those costs out of the salaries of the existing workers because there's a cost to the owner of those workers having left, unless they're all going to return, and that you know depends whether the owner gave a furlough um, or not, whether the whether, whether the workers are assured of being rehired. There are all sorts of factors that could affect that. Um, uh, there's the employer responsible for actual gain, which is that we, that, um, uh, as opposed to viewing the owner as, as responsible for what they, what they owed the workers, we can say that, um, right, this is a model that works in the Talmud, but it's much harder now. But if you're dealing with a, um, if you're dealing with a, um, with pieceworks, so you can say, look, the owner got things that are valued at X wholesale, right? So that's what the worker gave them. Yeah, um right, and now the owner's expected to resell them or maybe the right, um uh, but right, maybe the, the workers provided something actually to the owners, whatever they produced. And that would be challenging in cases where yeah, you know, we have where you have workers who are managers, things like that, right? So this doesn't that model exists but it's challenging to apply to a multi-level um society where the product is often not directly saleable to others. Uh, and then is what we call employer responsibility capoil batel uh, which is the idea that um, a significant number of people work only because they have to. And if they didn't have to, they would rather not work. So the question is, what would they, um, right, so you get, so by not, during this period, they didn't work. So, um, right, so they gained something, right, they gained not working. So you only have to pay them the difference, right, only, right, right. The difference between that, you, don't have, right, you have to pay them, you have to pay them what, what they lost for the difference between staying idle and their work and not the salary uh, right, not the salary from zero. Okay, those are possible outcomes. Now, I think there are what I call technical issues, which means issues that play out, right, they don't relate to what's right and wrong. They relate to how you decide halakha, because the legal system, apparently halakha, functions on authority issues and not just on truth issues. Um, so there are a couple of issues that make it very difficult for halacha to yield um, strict justice in complicated cases. One is we call kimli. Uh, so kimli is a principle that says that um, if there is a position that is recognized as viable halachically, then I am entitled. Right? Then the person in possession of the money is entitled um, is entitled to claim I hold like that position. Even if in the abstract we would say no, we would rather rule like this position than that position, but so long as that position is an acceptable position, then I can hold that way. So that's right, that's a very very difficult um, challenge for halacha in many substantive cases because it means that the positions which are you know that very often you end up right just being forced by that to say you know what I don't get to decide the law. The only way I get to decide is what the boundaries of legitimate legal options are. And if you have you know the equivalent of a you know of a ruling let 's say that um, you cannot be held liable for tax evasion if you have an opinion from any kind of right from anyone who is recognized by the bar association that says you don 't have to pay taxes even if it 's one lawyer right and you know and, and ninety nine lawyers oppose it as long as this position is recognized as legitimate you can 't impose it so that 's a grave difficulty for halacha. in order to prevent that from completely destroying the system we have to try and find a way of limiting options and that may mean that options in financial law in halacha, right, what's considered a, legit, a legitimate option in financial law is very different than what's true in other areas of the system the simplest way of framing it is that there uh, is a, a principle often invoked is that if a position didn't make it into the shulchan aruch in derech Mamanot, then you can't um, right, then you can't rely on it you can only rely on positions that are re- that are recorded in the Shulchan Aruch. So that runs into difficulties if the Shulchan Aruch is not comprehensive, wasn't aware of positions, issues like that. But you should be aware of that, that Kimli is, uh, makes it extraordinarily difficult to get justice. It creates a, you know, a very powerful incentive in favor of defendants against plaintiffs. Maybe you think that is justice, right? That's a whole, a whole separate issue. But, it, but it's really hard, it's very hard to overcome. All um, right, so usually, you know, the entire, a lot of the argument will be, Somebody interprets a right, a you know a position that a an acceptable but non non standard position in a way that then say I not only do I hold like that position I hold like this interpretation of that position and the courts have to hold with that interpretation of that position is reasonable but if you extend it as you should right to saying right on on formal grounds that uh, a defendant is allowed to is allowed to uh, right, a defendant succeeds if they can present themselves as following any reasonable interpretation, right? Any reasonable interpretation of any legitimate position, you understand why um, suing in Beit Din is not necessarily a productive endeavor. And that might be a very good thing on a social level. It might, you know, it might you know, severely, um, severely limit litigiousness, which is you know, obviously a, a major difficulty in America. Obviously, I think it is. Okay, there's a second principle, which is that halacha has a lot of, um has, you know, has a lot of bias towards, um right, towards keeping the money where it is, like most legal systems do. It does this through two formal categories. One is called muhzak, which uh, means that sometimes, and I think all legal systems probably have it, that possession is not quite the same thing as legally recognized possession. And if you grab something on the way into court and witnesses saw you, so, right, so then that reverts the, that reverses, that reverses the positions, right, which is complicated. And Whoever is the milchzalak, the other party, has the burden of proof. Right? That's a shifting of the uh, a shifting of the burden of proof. There's another concept we'll see later on called yodoh al hatachtona that I want to um, save introducing to later. And obviously, right, you know, there are cases where it's not clear who has the money. Uh, for example, if I have the check but I haven't deposited it yet, so who has the money? I have the check. I could deposit it. You could stop the check. But that means you have to do something, right, now I have it, right, it just means, does that mean that you can stop me from taking the money, or does that mean that you can get the money back, right, and that gets into a, a whole debate about what the nature of checks and credit cards, uh, right, what it, right, so you'll say, okay, I understand, If as long as you can stop the check, you don't have the money, what if the credit card has been paid, but I still have a right to challenge it, right, so that's a whole, or a whole level in terms of trying to figure out what it is, another category is what happens if contractually, um, I was supposed to have paid, but I didn't, so can I, ben- right, can I benefit by being the mukzak even though I became the mukzak through an action which was wrong? But it doesn't mean that I have that I obtained the money legitimately. I obtained the money legitimately, but I am, but I have failed to. Gi- but my failure to give it over is illegitimate, right? So those are obviously issues um, which are not germane to the direct substance of the case. They don't affect the right and wrong necessarily who should have the money, but they because they shift the burden of evidence. Uh, Or the burden of proof, because if it's the burden of proof, they will have dramatic effects on the outcome. And what I'm trying to argue is that uh, often, unfortunately, uh, particularly as the case gets more complicated, um, halacha is almost entirely determined. So issues like this, technical issues, are nine tenths of the law, and that's a grave challenge in cases where there are really substantive moral differences, uh, moral issues, and therefore it's not likely that. Uh, just that um, those kind of tactical results will yield justice. Okay, then we have issues trying to apply the precedents we have to modernity. Um, so we have, first of all, corporations, right? So corporations are not necessarily people halakhically. But R. Weiss thinks corporations are people, but um, very problematic trying to figure out what kind of people they are because they're not Jewish or not Jewish. So uh, R. Weiss's position at this point is a very challenging one, I think. And everyone else's is equally challenging. Um, Okay, the difference in teaching Torah and other professions, and you can think about all the ways in which the profession will be different both practically and because it plays a different social role. Um, The issue that uh, wages are not necessarily a zero-sum result for the parties, because, for example, if you don't get your wages, you get unemployment insurance, but if you still get paid, you do. So maybe you're, you're not losing your wages, you're losing your wages minus the unemployment insurance, at least for the duration of unemployment insurance. But can you be assured of it? And as many people have pointed out, this is particularly challenging. In, um, because religious institutions can exempt themselves from unemployment insurance, and many, um, many, uh, or have to ex- exempt themselves from unemployment insurance. I think that was the issue that came up with the uh, CMTL, that we wanted to opt in, and we were told that as, uh, since we're incorporated as religious institution, we're not allowed to. Um, but day schools are not, day schools are not necessarily incorporated the same way, but many of them do not pay unemployment insurance, um, we'll see that the the Talmud sort of assumes zero time to get any kind to get your next job, but we don't you know we have a very different model where we're right and again in the same notion the Talmud's dealing with you know with people who queue up for construction jobs in the morning, so they're roughly interchangeable, and if you don't get one job, then you just go over to the, to the next site and at least you have the same odds of having a job today as you had bef- right, as you had before you were hired, but that's you know not true in a in a system where the hiring process takes a long time. So there's an en- enormous opportunity cost if if right, if you if somebody takes away an existing job, that uh, particularly if they had, you know, in some sense, had promised it to you. Um, there is specificity of employment and contract. We'll see that that's a, right, what happens if I can't do exactly the work you assigned to me, that you intended to assign to me, but the contract is written vaguely, um, so that, right, so that um, in principle, I could say, well, look, you know, particularly, let's say, if you signed a personal services contract, much as I think halakha, Dislikes personal services contract. The intention, right? So the contract is written. Now it happens that day school contracts are often written like this. Day school contracts say you shall teach X number of classes, and uh, right, and engage, you know, attend the following meetings and school sessions, and da 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 da, and any other such duties as the principal shall assign. Now I always objected to such contracts because I claimed that they were fundamentally in violation of slavery provisions. But if you, but now we could reverse those contracts and say. That at least day schools always have to pay their teachers because the teachers can make a claim, well, you know what, assign you whatever duties you want there 's got to be something I, can, I can, we can we can, you know, we can update the payroll records we can go through you know we, we you know you can send us giant piles of paper from you know from sixty years ago, and we can see which of them are worth are worth are worth doing. We can start painting the backdrop for the two thousand forty five play. right you can 't say there's no there's nothing to assign us to do right so that might help it and then. There's an issue which is not, I think, sufficiently addressed in halakha. Um, the basic principle in halakha is that a po'el, but not numan, is entitled to, right, can never be held to specific performance. They can break their contract at any point so long as that doesn't cause damage to the, uh, to the employer because the Torah says you're not supposed to be slaves. And if somebody can tell you, no, you have to work for me now, that's fundamentally what slavery, uh, what slavery is. But maybe that creates a weakness in the, a weakness that you can't really hold an employer responsible um, because the employer has no security. So in what sense is it really fair to give the employee that kind of security when the employer has no security at all? The worker can walk off whenever they want. Now you can say, no, the employer has the security. The worker can't, can't, can't walk off without penalty unless there's no cost to the employer. Um, but what happens if you have somebody who is defined as a pole in the sense that they're a time worker But they don't have the capacity to work, to walk off. Um, because, right, without severe damages, because we treat it as the employer loses something for every moment they're not at work regardless. So in practice, there's always, there, there's always a cost to them to work, to walking off. So they're not quite free in the same way. Maybe they gain privileges in exchange for their loss. Okay. So my suggestion is that once we, once we claim that we're not using Dintura Mamash, so then, uh, right, one of the the huge advantages of saying no din Torah mamash is that nobody can say kimli, because right we're not using formal rules, and and possibly we don't have to be bound in quite the same ways as a Muslim mechaver al So a mosti mechaver we already saw the Khsam Sofir struggling with right, and so one of the big things that he did in the case exactly like this was to say I don't want to follow din Torah because a mosti mechaver is too much of a right is, is too much of a burden on justice. So what I'm suggesting is that ordinarily kimli means that you can't introduce novel legal positions or interpretations, because that would undermine the system. Because if we allow novel interpretations in, then the system is paralyzed because defense attorneys, if they're you know competent, should always be able to come up with, an interp- with a sufficiently plausible interpretation that by the rules of the system, the judge should not be able to rule against them. But if we're not using formal rules, then maybe we have space for a lot more creativity and therefore, maybe we can actually go back to the sources, and maybe it turns out that the sources are capable of producing more insight than the law, as it has developed, um, is for cases like this. Okay. Can I ask you a question? Absolutely. Go ahead. Um, uh, so you're talking about using uh, Shara versus Din. Is that what you? Um, yeah, but I'm, but it could be imposed Shara, right? Not necessarily reaching a party. It, what actually happens in Beitin, right? Is that whenever when, when the parties come to Beitin nowadays, um, so out in in America, not necessarily in Israel, but in America, uh, the Beitin should not take the case unless the parties signed a binding arbitration agreement. And the binding arbitration agreement in Beitin, in America, always says that the Beitin has the right to decide in accordance with Torah law, or in accordance with a pshara that resembles Torah law, which is using the language of the uh, you know sort of language of the uh, so, it could be an imposed sure. okay okay yep. and in america that's what it would have to be okay, so here is um Diane Yitzhak Grossman from you know from who's i think it is really and it's really i'm not sure on on you know, vod is adapting it from his works and here's what he said what what they how they summarize it in this article, we will consider whether parents are obligated to honor tuition commitments to schools that have temporarily closed. Um, The fundamental rule set forth by the Gemara is that if circumstances arise that prevent an employee from performing his work, he is not entitled to his wages. Okay, that's a very broad statement, right? That in the employee-employer relationship, the employer is not the employee is not entitled to wages unless they did the work. The only exception to that is unless the circumstances were foreseeable by the employer but not by the employee. That's a very high standard, Um, and in circumstances where neither of them could foresee it, or they could foresee it equally which is almost certainly the case in, uh, you know, in, the, in the coronavirus issue, uh, then um, right then the employee has no rights at all. Um, we could talk about at what point it becomes foreseeable, presumably it's at the moment of contract. And why should, you know, we're all human beings, we have no, right, why should one party have access to more information than the other? This principle is explicitly applied by the post scheme to the case of a parent who hired a tutor for his son and the child fell ill or died, Rahman al-Islam. The tutor is not entitled to his, his wages unless the child's illness is a frequent occurrence and thus foreseeable to the parents. But the tutor was unfamiliar with the child's condition. So this is a, a very interesting analogy: that the assumption that children who are sickly will remain so, uh, that being sickly also increases the odds increases the odds of death. And uh, right, right, and how do we know what the what the tutor is familiar with or not, and what information the tutor should accept? This is a very interesting uh, interesting extension. Okay, here are our footnotes. Our footnotes are the Gemara and the Torah on the one hand, um, right? That's for the basic law. And then for the application, our footnotes are the Ravya, the Morami Rottenberg cited in the Rush and the Mordechai um, and the Torah. And then we tell you, ah, this is the norm of halacha, but there are dissenting views uh, because Rabbi Yoel claims that the, that if the child dies, the Torah does get the wages. And Maram ruled that way before changing his mind. And then we have extensive discussions. So we have to figure out, like, you know, what Talachot does with all those dissenting views. Um, Looking at this, for me, the obvious opening. I don't think we're going to have time to get there in the end. Uh, So maybe we'll find uh, an occasion to do one more of these next week. I don't know. Um, That when you say the Raviyah, the the, the Raviyah, the marami Rottenberg. So the marami Rottenberg is always quoted in hundreds of places. And so his positions are ambiguous. And that's even when you discover that allegations that he changed his mind. So then you should get very suspicious about what he actually said. And as for the Ravya quoted in the Rush, well, we have the Ravya. So why are we using the version quoted in the Rush as opposed to the actual version? So the answer is, if you're doing the normal the normal rules of halacha. So if he were if he wasn't quoted in the Rush, then he wouldn't have made it into the Tur because the Tur is the Rush's son. So his position in the tradition is the position quoted by the Rush. But if we're Um, Going back to primary sources, and we think we can do that because we're living in Kimle, then it pays to look at the Rav and see what the Rav himself said. Okay, now this is, I think this presentation is uh, an accurate description of the way Dayanim today understand the past, right? So if you were walking into a standard Beit Din with Dayanim who, um, who, you know, get a a reasonable volume of cases, then you should expect them to rule this way. And, And a community that goes to such batidin there would be a justice issue if they did not understand the sources this way, I think. But it's not obvious to me that's what they mean. And we have freedom, so let's go and see what the sources actually mean in uh, what time we have remaining. So here's the tour. The tour says, um, If you, um, here I would just say, I'll probably ask you things, so please be prepared to chime in. If you hire a, a worker to, uh, right, to uh, dig in a field, Right? It's really you're accomplishing something agricultural thereby. And then it rains at night so that, um, right? So that there's nothing you can do. There's no point in working on the land. Your, your work has now become pointless or even impossible because you can't dig holes. The holes won't stay, I guess, right? Because they'll, they'll just collapse again. So now what does the halacha depend on? If the employer showed the employee the field the night before, then it's the employee's responsibility. why because since the employee saw the field, so he knows that if it rains, it doesn't pay to dig in it okay so the employee should not have shown up for work so this is a very different kind of um kind of standard, right but it seems to suggest. Is that the reason that the employer knows uh, the employer doesn't owe anything isn't because the employer is blameless, it's because the employee is blamed because the employee should not have shown up for work here, he should have shown up for work elsewhere. Right? He has no claim on the employer because he only showed up because he wanted to get paid based on the commitment. Rather than go find work elsewhere, or he wanted the he wanted the absolute um confidence of having work of having work um of getting paid as opposed to looking for work elsewhere, and that is his own responsibility not the right why should the employer be held responsibility be held responsible if the employee wasted his own time by showing up okay this is obviously circular because the employee has every reason to show up if he thinks the court will give him the money, but okay, if the employer didn't show him the work previously. Then he gives him his um kifo right as we explained right you know the what right the amount he's being paid extra to work as opposed to his still um from his perspective and he should have told him not to show up okay, so that raises questions what if the employer has no access to the employee Does it mean the employer has to be there first thing in the morning and wave him away? what if that's already too late for him to get other jobs right so this to me, sets up a much more complicated standard than the notion that employees have no right to their wages unless they did the work. It seems to me that there, right, that there's you know, very clear cases where they do, um, right, which is if uh, if the any time where the employer breached a duty, um, or any time where by the time the information is useful to them, they are no longer capable of finding equivalent work. So that's a very different standard for our cases where um, it's not all clear what employer's duties are, but it's also not clear that employees have any option at all. And it's obviously gonna be different in a case where there is no possibility, if this is the standard, so what if the employees have no possibility of getting other work? And on the other hand, here it's not clear that the owners sustained a loss. The owners just, you know, the only loss the owners would sustain is paying the wages. Just the work can't be done, which is not the same thing as saying that there's an ongoing loss. Okay, the Rambam writes in um, if the if the owner checked out his work for the evening before, so the Rambam is a very different perspective. It's not a question of whether the employee's time has been has been wasted unnecessarily. Right, he doesn't frame it on that. He frames it entirely on whether there is a a breach by the um, by the by the owner. Right, if the owner checked out the land and the owner did everything reasonable to know in advance, so as opposed to the first position, which says that the re- key moment is the key moment is in the morning. Right, should the employee have been prevented from coming? The Rama says, look, if he checked out at night, then what more could he have done? It's not focused on the employee. It's focused on the employer on the other end. If the employer, right, had breached a duty—not a duty of of not conveying knowledge, but a duty of not obtaining knowledge—which and the the um, the employee is entitled to the right to a to a presumption that the employer will know everything that needs to be known, and will convey, and will convey the information to him. So since he didn't check it out, and the Ramah writes the same thing as well, the in Shlurah out pasha, because the employer. Did not fulfill their responsibility to know whether the contract would be reasonable the next day. So the employer is responsible because the employer has breached the duty. right? So these are, I think, two radically different conceptions as opposed to a single conception. And neither of them uh, are perfectly compatible with the opening uh, first sentence. But it turns out that life is uh, a lot more complicated than this because there's a whole set of other cases. So this was the case uh, where you're hired to dig. Another case is what happens if you hire. Um, an employee to irrigate, right? You hire him to uh, to water your field from a uh, from a canal and the canal, or from a wadi, whatever it is, and and the stream stops giving water. So then we have to check it out, right? If it turns out if it's an unusual occurrence for this well or whatever or water or stream, whatever it is, to dry up, or if it happens occasionally, and the worker knows that it happens occasionally, then the worker loses, and the owner gives him nothing. Even though the owner knows it as well, because we presume that the worker in the right, that the worker's wages price in. This is the way I'm translating it. Then the workers price the workers wages priced in the risk that there would be no work. But if the owner, but if the worker has no way of knowing about the risk, and the owner knows the risk, then he has to pay him. Right? I would argue right, that the reason for that is that the right that there was a um there was and inequity in the initial circumstances of the negotiation. Um, okay, so the olam, right. So it works out that the owner only pays if he knows and the worker doesn't. But you know, again, from a, a modern economics perspective, that's because if they both have information, then the right, then that information is priced into the is priced into the wage. And if they both don't know, then um, the at least the bargaining was fair. So that we already got. Um right right and then he says the Addo'a Tachtona. So Tachtona, I think, adds something here as well. I'm sorry, in the end I guess I'm lecturing more than I expected. Um, I think means something different than Mosumhavel of Rayah. Al-Tachtona comes from a uh, a Mishnah which says that in many employee employer relationships, the governing uh the governing law is the local custom, uh right, what I think in unions is now called the community standard community standard wages although obviously there are be conflicts about what's the finest community standard and any party which seeks to change right which seeks to to create a contractual uh a, an element of a contract which differs from community standards they are on, they, they they are tartona uh, right they have, they have the losing end in negotiation which means that the, that they're the ones who have to explicitly stipulate and get their stipulation accepted by the other parties so, means that not only once the case comes to court do we say that whoever has the money wins but also when the case comes to court and the issue is which party should have stipulated so the work so in cases of equal information we right, we impose the burden on the worker to issue stipulations that are not universally acknowledged okay so therefore uh, right, we say the only cases in this, right, so everybody say, if you're hired to be a, uh, to be a, um, a waterer, and then it rains at night, so that watering is no longer necessary, they don't pay them at all, because, that, right, because neither side had any way of knowing that it would rain, that it would rain that much more than the other. And similarly, if it rains at midday, right, there's nothing, right, there's nothing that, um, that either party has, a, that makes the illegitimate, the original negotiation illegitimate. But this, he says, if the, um, if the river rises and waters his field, so then the owner loses and he has to pay him because he knows that his field can do this. And therefore, since there is an, uh, I'm not using the right word, an inequ- inequity of information, that's not the right term. Inequality information, whatever it may be, I'm not using the right term. Therefore, that shifts the burden to the, em- all right, to the employer. And the employer has the burden of making the condition. Okay, so now that's a much more complicated um, model for us. right? So now we can talk about, it's not necessarily that it depends on whether the workers were paid in advance or not, or whether they should have been paid in advance or not, which would even a huge example advantage to the, to the employers. The question is, who has the obligation to stipulate in a contract? What will happen if there is a pandemic? And so that's a, right, so that is a, uh, that's a profoundly challenging question, but it's really useful. Question: Trying to figure out how we can um, get there. When these halachas show up in the Shulchan Arach, uh so firstly, interesting enough, the Shulchan Arach reverses the order, and that might or may not be significant, in which he presents the um, the cases. Um, and then, but here we have you know, interesting because here we have two parties: we have the, um, the the Mechaber and then the Ramah, and you have to try and figure out is the Ramah presenting an alternate position, or is the Ramah presenting a um, right? As an expansion of the existing positions, um, okay. So, but the Ramah, so Ramah takes these cases and he extends them to other kinds of cases. First of all, he tells you, well, this is not the place to look for what happens in Makat Medina. You might think a Makat Medina, right? You know, universal, universal phenomenon, is just the same as any other case where neither party had had had, had knowledge, the other one didn't. But that's not true. He says, Makat Medina is a completely different halakha. So that's also an interesting question. And why? And then he tells you that, you know what, the models I have here are, employee, are employer-employee, but employer-employee can be extended to lots of other cases. For example, interestingly, the, a landlord is the employee for these purposes, because the landlord is the one getting paid for the service of providing the space. So that's a really interesting question, you know, as to how we conceive of, so employees are still employees. But our financial system is much more complicated. And is this really, is it really as simple as, as paid or payer? Or are there lots of other ways in which we can try and figure out who is the POIL and who is the balabait in modern um, in modern cases? As for example, uh, the Bezvad says, you know, that there, uh, a position put out by the Bayes Vahid said, all this is only true um, in the abstract because we're treating the contract as if it were directly between the parents and the daycare workers, but actually the contract is between the parents and the school. And then the school is a second contract with the workers, and maybe that changes everything because the school is the employee with regard to the parents, but the employer with regard to the workers. And but they're really the same. It's really the same um, contract. So what are we supposed to do about that? Um, Okay. What about death? Right. So death is not necessarily the same thing as um, same thing as illness. Um, Right. Which right. But here is an interesting claim that death is the same as illness, and therefore the landlord had the burden of stipulation because the landlord is like the employee and not the employer. So that's a radical shift toward tenant power, if you want. But on the other hand, people disagree with that, so in practice, that would be useless. If we follow Din we don't have to follow Din here, so we have lots of room here. Um, okay, a wholly different perspective is offered by the, um, the Shulchan Aruch, presenting the same case, um, right, offers a whole new argument. If the river comes, then you pay the workers entirely. Why? Min ha nistayu. nistayu. Sometimes we can say you know, right because we, it turns out that the river case is the river case for watering is different than the um, is different than the well digging case with the rain. And the well digging case in the rain is not that the work was done. What happened is that the work became un right, the work became undoable. But here. The work was done; just the employees are no longer necessary. So the work is done, but the employees are necessary. Says so the Shulchan Then, even if both parties have equal knowledge in, in advance, you do have to pay because guess what? God likes them. And right? so you know, so that raises you know that's a wholly different model for thinking about um, how you write about issues um, issues like that. Okay, um, right. The Shulchan actually has Ma'at Medina. And it is 402, so we're not actually going to get to do, I fear, uh, the rush and the Maharam. Um Suffice it to say, right, you know, shorthand that the um, that the rush and the Maharam are much more complicated than presented in this case. It's not clear that every issue is talking about uh, that every issue is talking about um, about just about uh, milamdim, but but some things are unique to milamdim. For example, we assume, or at least some people assume, that milamdim. Would not rather have nothing to do rather it. they prefer to work than not to work, um, so there's no deduction there's no deduction for cases like this, but this is a matter of great of grave controversy There's a debate as to under what circumstances do you see right do you create the claim that, where, where can somebody claim well I show up to work, you didn't just let you just didn't let me do it right So what happens in a government shutdown if the government directs the employer to close? But the employee is willing to come in anyway. Can right? Is that a viable claim that the employee says, you know, if the right, if you let me in, I would right, I would, uh, I would come in. You're just not letting me in now. You're telling me you're not letting me in because the government didn't tell you to. But the government didn't tell me not to go. The government told you not to let me in. If the, right, and you know, for example, I have to know that um, that uh, my daughter's fiance is in a circumstance where um, it might very well have been an excellent idea. For the government to tell his employer to shut the right to shut the work down several weeks in advance of when they finally did, um, but so long as the employer stayed open, he came in. So that demonstrates right that he was willing to come in, um, even though it was probably you know unwise of him perhaps from a health perspective to do so. So maybe in that case, it's obvious that the um, that the employer is liable. Right. So those are all models that are not mentioned in that in that paragraph, which I think can emerge. From here, the most interesting one, the creative one for me, is the relationship between the right to breach the contract and the obligation to stipulate. Uh, It seems seems, sort of a reasonable claim that the the way in which we create an equitable halachic system is by saying that uh, because workers have the right to breach the contract any time, therefore they have the burden of stipulation under most circumstances. But what happens if you have an employee who is defined as not having the right to breach the contract without penalty because their work is universally understood as imposing costs on the owner if they leave, which um, is which we'll see that you know the medieval's argued that was true about a Milamid. So uh, an argument that um, Rabbi Michael uh, taught me this years ago, and I think that it was wise. Apparently, said that there was a dispute between Justice Alon and uh, Rabbi Rachman, where Justice Alon s- said that the, what you try and do with halakha in the Israeli legal system is we'll try and stick whatever halacha we can into the legal system. So we can get this deal in, this language in here, we'll get this language in here. And so we're trying to get as much halacha as we can into the legal system. And Ray Rackman said, halacha functions holistically. So if you take little pieces of halacha out and put them into a different system, as opposed to creating justice, they might enhance injustice because they're not, right? Because law is a system of checks and, of, you know, checks and balances among the parties. Um, so what I think that the, the interpretations that, Determine wage data that connect the issue of whether you owe wages to the question of the right of the worker to breach the contract. So then, right, we have a much more complicated notion of under what circumstances you can and can't breach contracts. And it depends very much on the profession and the circumstances, um, right? And we could talk about whether you're subject to the Wagner Act, whether you can strike, whether you can't strike. Also, right, so I think that that might also provide a much more sophisticated uh, framework for thinking about these issues that happen if all you can do is apply the precedents in exactly the way that they were um, applied before, which, again, I think is what you have to do if you're in a system where the expectations are determined by the law and your job is governed by expectations. But here we have a bunch of reasons that you can't judge in accordance with expectations. One is that there is very little background, you know, there just isn't enough precedent in Halakha anyway. And two is you have a whole set of figures that say that law that Law is the wrong framework for expectations here anyway, so I think there's room for a much more creative endeavor to think about um what Halakha might or might not be able to say uh, about cases like this okay um so now is a good time if you have questions um and I'm sorry you know, again that time wise there wasn't there it just didn't work out to have discussions on the really um